I'm Nim, and this is A Spoonful of Medicine, topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. On today's episode, we're taking a look at asthma, specifically the outpatient management or subacute management of asthma. Asthma and reactive airway disease is a very common presentation, especially if you've ever worked in general paediatrics, in the emergency department, in a GP practice, or in community health. Really, kids with asthma present in a variety of settings, and so it's important for nursing staff, allied health, and medical professionals to have a good idea about how to pick up asthma, how to diagnose asthma, and also how we manage asthma. So, get ready. And let's go. As you're probably aware, there is so much information about asthma, how to manage it and what to do. So for this episode, I've used the Australian Asthma Handbook, which is an amazing resource that covers everything you could possibly want to know about asthma. If you're not in Australia, the specific medications or precise treatment paradigms may vary slightly. However, overall, the approach to management of asthma is pretty universal. Asthma is a super common condition. It affects over 2 million Australians. From 2001 to 2010, in fact, the asthma prevalence increased by 3% every year. And asthma prevalence across the world is also increasing. It's doubled in the past two decades. So really, we're only going to see more and more of asthma. Asthma prevalence in adults is about 5%, with the female predominance. In children, however, the prevalence is higher at 25%, and males have the predominance there. Luckily, the death rate of asthma in children is incredibly low, and the estimation is about 1 in 2.5 million. So, what is asthma? Well, it's a condition of airway hypersensitivity that is characterized by contraction of smooth muscle in the larger airways, causing obstruction. Inflammation itself contributes to airway hyperresponsiveness, with airways constricting in response to allergens, irritants, viral infections, and even exercise. In terms of the immunology, asthma and atopy are very linked. Initially, this development of sensitivity, where initial contact with an allergen, say dust for example, is taken up by antigen-presenting cells with MH2 receptors, and these are presented to Th2 cells. This goes on to sensitize the immune system, and there's a production of IgE. Then, when there's exposure to a presensitized trigger, IgE bound to the surface of mast cells and basophils is cross-linked by the allergen. This causes cell degranulation, and that causes release of inflammatory mediators such as histamine, leukotrienes, platelet aggregating factor and bradykinin, as well as chemotactic factors, cytokines and eotaxin. All this causes airway edema, inflammation, smooth muscle contraction, and altered cellular activity. This leads to the symptoms that we see in asthma clinically such as bronchoconstriction, mucus production, wheezing, shortness of breath, and chest tightness. In an acute asthma exacerbation, there's an early phase and a late phase. The early phase is the first 10 to 30 minutes. Here, edema and bronchoconstriction, as well as mucus plugging, predominate. There's re-expression to an allergen that causes cross-linking of IgE and degranulation of basophils and increase in things like histamine and leukotrienes. 
This causes bronchoconstriction and increased vascular permeability, edema, more mucus, and the signs and symptoms we see in acute asthma. This is preventable by beta agonists, such as salbutamol. Then there's a late phase, and this is about 4 to 12 hours. Here, inflammatory infiltration and edema predominate. It's mediated by eosinophils, lymphocytes, and neutrophils. Sensitized Th2 cells release IL-4, IL-13, and cause class switching to IgE. There's also major basic protein as well as eosinophilic catatonic protein that all causes bronchoconstriction and epithelial damage. This is what causes the delayed phase or late phase of an exacerbation. And it's what corticosteroid treatment is aiming to prevent. Ultimately, however, if you have uncontrolled asthma, there is chronic airway inflammation and that leads to airway remodeling. There's proliferation of extracellular matrix proteins as well as vascular smooth muscle cell hyperplasia. All of this can lead to irreversible structural changes and progressive loss of pulmonary function. And so, because there's a real risk of loss of pulmonary function, it is incredibly important to manage asthma well. So how does a kid with asthma present? Well, they can either present in an acute exacerbation, for which we'll do a mini-sode on later this week. Or they can have a subacute presentation with ongoing symptoms that should perk your interest and think of an asthma as a diagnosis. These symptoms include a chronic dry cough that may be exacerbated or worsened by exercise or into the evening or overnight. These children may also, if severe enough, have a barrel chest as well as a prolonged expiratory phase on auscultation due to airway obstruction. You may also hear decreased air entry or wheezing on auscultation. The symptoms may be brought on by specific triggers such as a viral infection, tobacco smoke, pollen such as grass, weed and trees, as well as house dust mite exposure, which are actually a very common trigger for asthma. The child's symptoms may also be exacerbated by animal dander or saliva or feces such as from cats and dogs, birds or even horses. Exercise may also trigger their symptoms, and in these cases, it usually occurs 5 to 10 minutes after exercise and subsides without treatment in the next 10 to 30 minutes. It's thought to be related to a degree of cooling of the intrathoracic airways as inspired air is warmed and moistened. Finally, medications such as beta blockers, as well as non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, can cause asthma exacerbations or can trigger asthma. If you have a child that you think, hmm, they could have asthma, how do we go about diagnosing it? Well, it depends on how old the child is, because in infants and toddlers, there's no way you're going to be able to do spirometry. But in the older child, you can, and that's really helpful. In infants, i.e. those that are 0 to 12 months old, you can't diagnose asthma. Wheezing in this age group is most commonly due to acute viral bronchiolitis, or due to small airways or floppy airways. So asthma doesn't exist in them. However, infants with clinically significant wheezing should be referred to a pediatric respiratory physician or pediatrician because they could have some other underlying issues such as tracheomalacia or bronchomalacia, for example. If we look at a kid who's a little bit older, so the preschool kiddos, they are one to five years of age. 
Here, while many of them are later diagnosed with asthma, it is difficult to make the diagnosis of asthma with a high degree of certainty in them. So why is that the case? It's because episodic wheeze and cough is super common in this age group, especially in those under the age of three years old. Objective lung function is also not feasible in a toddler, and so it's hard to get objective measures. Furthermore, a high proportion of children who respond to bronchodilator treatment in this age don't go on to have asthma in later childhood. But if we look at factors that make asthma a little bit more likely, things like symptoms that occur frequently, symptoms that are worse at night, symptoms that have clear triggers, or those that occur outside of a clear respiratory illness, as well as a family history or a history in the child themselves of atopy, make asthma a little bit more likely. Things that go against asthma as a diagnosis in the long term include symptoms that only occur with a viral illness or an isolated cough without wheeze because cough variant asthma is not thought to be present in children. Also, things like a moist cough or a chronic cough that is productive is not suggestive of asthma. That's more suggestive of persistent bacterial bronchitis or, more concerningly, bronchiectasis. Nonetheless, if you have a child who's in the preschool age group who you think could have a tendency to have reactive airway disease, a preventer is indicated if they are having moderate to severe flares, which is meaning they need ED or hospital admission every six months or less, or if they're having mild symptoms weekly. You could also consider if they're having mild symptoms every four to six weeks. Now, if we have a look at the older kid, so 6 to 11 years old. In these school-aged children, you're able to do spirometry, and so the diagnosis of asthma is supported by documentation of variable expiratory airflow limitation. This means spirometry showing an obstructive picture and reversibility after short-acting bronchodilator administration. These children also need to have a convincing history for asthma, as well as no red flags for alternative diagnoses. The spirometry findings that you'll find in asthma are decreased expiratory flow rate, which can help monitor asthma, but is not the diagnostic standard. What does show obstruction is a decrease in the FEV1, as well as a decrease in the FEV1 over FVC. This is because obstruction is preventing emptying of the airways on expiration. Typically, in children with asthma, they'll have a normal full vital capacity or forced vital capacity because it's an obstructive disease, not a restrictive disease. If, however, there's considerable air trapping or hyperinflation, they can have a restrictive picture because of an increased residual volume causing a reduced forced vital capacity. In terms of reversibility, you are looking for a 12% increase in FEV1 as well as a 200 mil increase in FEV1. If reversibility testing is negative after bronchodilator, you can consider bronchial provocation testing or cardiopulmonary exercise testing to see if these can provoke bronchoconstriction and then subsequent response to bronchodilators. Now that we know what asthma is and how we diagnose it, what do we do when a child with asthma 
comes into our clinic. We want to assess the asthma severity, assess the asthma control, and classify what type of asthma this child has. Once we've done all of that, we go on to the medication of asthma, as well as strategies for the general management. So what are the classifications of asthma? The first classification is infrequent episodic asthma, and this is described as episodes that are six to eight weeks apart or more. The attacks themselves usually are not too severe, and the symptoms are rare between attacks. There'll be normal examination and normal lung function testing between episodes. Next, we have frequent episodic asthma. This is where attacks occur a bit more frequently, i.e. less than six weeks apart. The attacks tend to be more troublesome and the increase in symptoms between attacks may be present. However, these children still have a normal examination and normal lung function between episodes. And the third classification of asthma is persistent asthma. Here, daytime symptoms occur more than two days a week and nocturnal symptoms occur more than one night a week. The attacks are less than six weeks apart and these children may have abnormal lung function testing between episodes. Multiple ED visits or hospital admissions won't be surprising. Once we have a classification of asthma, we can go on to assess how severe it is, as well as how well it is controlled. With asthma severity, it is classed according to the level of treatment needed to achieve or maintain good asthma control. Asthma severity is not classified by the intensity or frequency of symptoms or by the clinical findings before starting preventative treatment. Asthma control, on the other hand, is dictated by the intensity or frequency of symptoms. Good asthma control includes daytime symptoms on less than two days a week, need for short-acting beta agonists or relievers less than twice a week, they don't have asthma symptoms during the night or on waking, and there's no limitations for this child in terms of their activities. Partially controlled asthma is defined as daytime symptoms that occur more than two times a week, lasting only a few seconds, but are responsible to salbutamol. These children may need salbutamol reliever more than twice a week. There may be a little bit of limitation from activities and they may have some symptoms during the night. Poor asthma control is classified as one or more of the following. These children may have three or more features of partial control in the last week. They may have frequent flare-ups of their asthma, which is two or more flare-ups lasting minutes to hours that are only partially responsive to salbutamol. Or they may have had two flares requiring treatment with oral corticosteroids in the last year. Children with poor asthma control may also have serious flare-ups, and they are classified as hospital admissions, paediatric ICU admissions, or need for mechanical ventilation in the past year. There can be a whole host of reasons that asthma is not well controlled, and the most common reasons for failure to achieve good control on asthma include suboptimal adherence to asthma management plans, poor inhaler techniques, Continued exposure to environmental triggers or allergens for obvious reasons would still trigger your asthma. 
They may have untreated comorbid medical conditions such as chronic rhinosinusitis or reflux. And also, someone who is not responding to asthma treatment, although is compliant, may actually have an alternative non-asthma diagnosis. In terms of managing asthma, we can think of the general education and lifestyle advice, as well as medications. In terms of general education, we advise patients to minimize allergen exposure, so limit the amount of exposure to dust mites, dander and pollens, as well as smoke. If parents smoke at home, it's encouraged for them to quit to help manage their child's asthma. Also, influenza vaccination annually is recommended for children with asthma. It's also really important to assess inhaler use and technique because poor asthma inhaler use may mean that the patient is not actually receiving the medication that they're trying to give themselves. Written asthma action plans are also very important to give to families, and these include how to manage their asthma in every day, as well as what to do in acute exacerbation situations. It's also really important to manage comorbid conditions that affect asthma, such as allergic rhinitis. Furthermore, always review the need for preventative medication. If the child is having wheezing attacks less than six weeks apart, attacks becoming more frequent and more severe, or they're having increasing interval symptoms, they may need escalation of the preventative therapy. And speaking of preventative therapy, that's a great segue into medications. So, asthma is largely managed through preventative medications as well as relief medications. Preventers prevent asthma exacerbations and prevent ongoing symptoms. Relief medications such as salbutamol relieve acute asthma symptoms such as shortness of breath, wheeze and bronchoconstriction. The escalation of management in asthma follows a stepwise response. So, all children with asthma should have a reliever, and this in Australia is salbutamol, or the brand name Ventolin. Most children may actually only need a reliever and not need a preventative medication to manage their asthma. However, if their asthma is poorly controlled on a reliever alone, we go to step two. In step two, we add on a regular preventer. The options for a reliever, both in the preschool age group as well as in the school age group, are a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid such as fluticasone propanoate or flixotide junior or montelukast, which is a leukotriene receptor antagonist. Flixotide junior is often used and it started as either one to two puffs twice a day. If you still feel that the child who is on a low-dose corticosteroid or montelukast as well as a regular reliever still has poor asthma control, we go to step three. Here, we still continue the same reliever, which is subunimal, but change up the preventer or step up the preventer. Our options in those who are in the preschool age group are a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid along with montelukast or a high-dose inhaled corticosteroid in consultation with a specialist. In children who are 6 to 12 years of age, the options are a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid with montelukast, a high-dose inhaled corticosteroid, 
or a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid and long-acting beta agonist combination. It's also really important to consider specialist referral in kids who are requiring step 3, also if they are not quite well controlled on step 3 therapies. The top tier of asthma management is step 4, and all these kids should be referred to a pediatrician or pediatric respiratory physician. This tier includes the same relievers as well as the stepped-up preventer with additional add-on treatments. This could include oral steroid courses or monoclonal antibodies such as omalizumab which is an anti-IgE antibody that is approved for treatment in children aged above 6 years with severe allergic asthma and exacerbations despite being on daily high dose inhaled corticosteroids. And now to finish off this episode I wanted to cover a few top points about the various medications. Inhaled glucocorticoids are a potent anti-inflammatory agent that help reduce the inflammation by inhibiting most steps in the inflammatory cascade. They decrease bronchial hyperresponsiveness and airway reactivity. They decrease the need for rescue bronchodilator therapy. They prevent the late asthmatic response and they also help to enhance lung function. However, inhaled glucocorticoids do have some issues. Low to medium dose inhaled corticosteroids may decrease growth velocity, but the effect is small, about one centimeter in the first year of treatment. Children can also get oral candidal infections if they don't wash their mouth out after inhaled steroid use. Ultimately, inhaled corticosteroids don't have clinically significant adverse effects on the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis function, glucose metabolism, supercapsular cataracts, or glaucoma. Next, if we have a quick look at long-acting inhaled beta agonists such as salmeterol and fermeterol. These facilitate bronchodilation and have a duration of effect of about 12 hours. These in children are only used as an adjunct to inhaled glucocorticoids. They are never prescribed as a monotherapy. Salmeterol and fermeterol may actually induce tolerance to bronchodilating effects of salbutamol, which, as you can imagine, is not ideal. Finally, a word about monoclonal antibodies. These are an add-on treatment to decrease the severity of flare-ups and improve symptom control in patients with severe allergic or eosinophilic asthma, whose asthma is uncontrolled despite treatment with high-dose inhaled corticosteroids and long-acting beta agonists. The monoclonal antibodies themselves target inflammatory pathways that activate type 2 immune responses leading to airway inflammation, i.e. antibody-mediated cellular cytotoxicity. There are four available agents in Australia. They're called benralizumab, mepolizumab, dupilumab, and omalizumab. That last one, omalizumab, is the only one that is TGA registered for children under the age of 12 years. Omalizumab is a humanized monoclonal antibody against IgE. It decreases IgE binding to mast cells and basophils and decreases IgE receptor expression on basophils. This ultimately decreases histamine release on allergen exposure. 
And so, logically, it's used in the management of moderate to severe allergic asthma in adolescents aged above 12 years, already on the highest doses of inhaled corticosteroids and LABAs, or as an add-on treatment in children aged 60 years or older with severe allergic asthma and exacerbations despite high daily doses of inhaled corticosteroids. Monoclonal antibodies are fairly well tolerated and they decrease flare-ups, they decrease the maintenance requirement for oral steroids, they increase symptom control and they have better lung function. The main side effects are injection site responses, headaches, pharyngitis, pyrexia or abdominal pain. Anaphylaxis from these monoclonal antibodies is possible but rare. And that's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a quick summary of today's episode, along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, or have heard something that you think needs a correction, please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure chopping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.